Welcome to Asian Pacific Voices Radio, where you'll find stimulating conversations that explore diverse topics and stories impacting our communities. I'm your host, Rasha Goel, and today I have a very special guest joining me. He is an accomplished film producer with extensive experience working on productions worldwide as an executive producer, producer, unit production manager, and production supervisor. He has collaborated with renowned directors such as Christopher Nolan, Michael Mann, Gore Verbinski, and Catherine Bigelow. He's also produced blockbuster films such as Tenet, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, Fast and Furious 5, and Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, also including other dramatic films such as Ali, The Weight of Water, Broke Down Palace, and Donnie Darko. And he's recently produced a film for Michael Mann based on the life of Enzo Ferrari in Italy. And right now he's working on another project for Universal with Lee Isaac Chung, who is directing. It is my great pleasure and honor to introduce Thomas Hayslip on Asian Pacific Voices radio show. We know that you have a very busy schedule, Thomas, so thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, and thank you for being patient. I had to give you that long intro because of all the extensive and amazing work you've done. Before I jump into your career, I'd love to just talk to you a little bit about you growing up, I understand you were born in Vietnam and moved to the U.S. as a toddler. Was there a particular moment that stands out to you uh, that perhaps was challenging for you as an immigrant to this country? And how did you overcome that challenge? Yeah, I was born in uh, Da Nang um, in 1970. Uh, we came to the States shortly thereafter, and my mom didn't like it. And so we went back and then came back again when I was three years old, which is... Uh, you know, when it was starting to get uh, really hot over there for the war. My father died about three months, I believe, after we arrived in America. And so the younger memories of, of that are uh, not there for me. Uh, luckily, uh, my mother was able to remarry. That father died when I was 12 years old. And all of this happened mainly in San Diego. And so if you could imagine growing up in San Diego, post-Vietnam War, it had its challenges, uh, you know, a lot of military in San Diego. We grew up in a Caucasian neighborhood. And so there was a lot of the, uh, the ching-chonging you would expect to get in the 70s uh, when you're growing up as a, an Asian or at least a, a half Asian. Uh, my father was Caucasian. In terms of overcoming it, you know, I was really embarrassed uh, growing up to be Vietnamese just because of the war and the way my mother approached living in America. She really held on to a lot of uh, our deep beliefs, worship, Buddhism, those sorts of those sorts of things. And so when I would come home from Little League with my friends that happened to fall around Tet, there'd be 10 monks in my front yard with a whole suckling pig and chanting and singing and all that stuff. And yeah, I'd had to turn them around and say, let's go somewhere else. <laughs> it was just a bit, uh, a bit much. But it wasn't until I actually uh, moved to Hollywood and saw the amount of diverse people, you know, that were there that I finally started to understand, you know, what my culture is and what it should mean to me. And I really started embracing it, you know, in my early 20s. Um, and I was actually really, really proud of being Vietnamese. And not so much because at that point, everyone was finally experiencing a big bowl of pho. So, <laughs> right. so it was always like, hey, can I go eat with you? So, you know, so it was just becoming more commonplace and less taboo to be Vietnamese. You know, we were moving beyond uh, all of the uh, POW, MIA, you know, veteran issues. And, and 
it really uh, was a great place to be in my early 20s. And I think the way I overcame, you know, some of the ethnic shaming, for lack of a better word, was to bring my friends to Vietnam and, and have them meet my grandmother in her village and actually show them uh, how amazing my country was. And it's not a war, but it was actually a people and a country and a, a tradition and a heritage. And funny enough, I kind of got that uh, playbook for my mom because she started bringing uh, Vietnam veterans back. When I was growing up in the, uh, uh, in the 80s and 90s, before Vietnam was normalized, to show them that it, Vietnam w w was a country and Vietnam was a tradition and not just a war. And it helped them heal a lot. So they healed wow. from their battle scars. I healed from thinking that, you know, I came from the enemy and now I'm living in the enemy's land. So I don't know it's a little bit complicated, but uh, it was just great making that transition from being embarrassed of being Vietnamese to actually uh, embracing it. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. It's, you know, what really struck to me was the comment you made about embracing the culture and then realizing that I'm not coming from the enemy. I, I can only imagine how that sat during that time. And um, yeah, so thank you for sharing that. And I love how in our 20s is when we begin to embrace our cultures, because that's how I think also, you know, being born into an immigrant family, for me, that's the thing too. It was not cool to be Indian. And now here we are, right, in 2023, and everybody's all into the food, and we want to wear saris, and this is so <laughs> cool, and your music. So it's exactly. been quite a journey. Uh, you've had such just an intense and diverse range also of roles in the film business. I mean, since 1991, you were a research assistant, production supervisor, and associate producer to um, unit production, being a unit production manager, producer, and an executive producer. So was there a formal education that was received for this kind of work? And then was there a person or a film that particularly inspired you to join this industry? My rise or my experience in the film industry um, started where everyone thinks it should start, uh, from the bottom, working my way up. Um, now I realize that you should actually start at the, the top and work your way sideways, but oh, really? that's, for, okay. that's for a different conversation. <laughs> okay. but, um, but yeah, so basically I was given the opportunity to work on a film uh, when I was 19, 20 years old. Uh, I was half-heartedly kind of maybe going to school in San Diego at that time, and let's just say that you know, I was, I was a kid and, and kind of not really figuring out where I was going to be. And so I was given this opportunity and yeah, I basically packed my car, drove up to Los Angeles and moved into a home uh, with five guys from Oklahoma who moved to LA to be in the movies as well. And luckily they had a room and so I could, uh, I could actually uh, have a place to live. But it's, it's actually quite a funny story that the way that I started was again, through my mom, a lot of a lot of you know what I've got is because my mom opened the door for me, and you know when I came in, I I, I pushed my way in. So my mother uh, is a philanthropist. She has uh, NGOs, does work in Vietnam, humanitarian work uh, with schools, orphanages, all of that stuff. And I helped her with her foundation when she was um, starting it off, and I was I was still in high school. At that point, my mother's book, uh, When Heaven and Earth Change Places, was optioned uh, by Oliver Stone. And he was planning on making a movie of it and making it the third film in his trilogy. Uh, my mom had a fundraiser 
and invited Oliver down. I was very excited. And so I met him and I asked him the question that any kid would ask a famous director is, how do you get started in the industry? <laughs> and he flippantly responded, hard work, and then walked away. Oh, great. <laughs> so what have you. And so my mom you know, came up later on in the evening and said, oh, did you meet Oliver? He's great. He said he loves you guys. He says you guys are really great. And I kind of keyed her in on our very brief conversation. And my mom, not having the filter, but having the mom instinct uh, at the end of the night, told Oliver that I thought he was an asshole and that I just wanted to understand the film industry. And the moment he heard that, he said, "Have him, you know, give him uh, my office number and maybe we can find him something. So I called up the office uh, the next day, uh, drove up to L.A. three days later, met with the coordinator and had no idea what I was doing other than I was moving to L.A. to do something in movies. Yeah, I drove up to L.A. that weekend, started work on Monday, making uh, 50 bucks a day, and I was in hog heaven. And that was on the doors. Wow. So I started off as a PA on the doors in, in the office, and there was a producer uh, named uh, Alex Kitman Ho. And he was Oliver's producer, uh, you know, early on in his career on Born on the Fourth of July and Salvador and, and, and uh, that sort of business. He kind of took a liking to me and he was Asian. So surprise, surprise, we've got somebody in our, our camp, right? Wow. And so he basically told me, what are you doing here? Go back and finish school and then come up here. And I said, let me figure this out. And so I worked on the doors. And when that was done, um, I moved to uh, Dallas uh, to put myself up as a local uh, to work on JFK and then moved to New Orleans to continue working on JFK because they weren't going to travel a production assistant. Okay. And from there, I just kept on working and moving my way through departments, working my way to where I wanted to be, which was a producer. Um, and I was lucky enough to have Alex as someone who uh, mentored me, who gave me the options and opportunities to either fail or succeed. But the interesting thing about the way I started, I believe, is that when people are telling you, go do that. In your mind, you think, well, I can't fail because they just told me to do it. They trust me enough to do it, so I'll go do that. Only now do I realize what they were asking me to do were challenging things. You know, mm -hmm. Go to Africa, set up uh, this game reserve for the Ghost in the Darkness. Uh, go to France and set up the reshoot of the ending of the Ghost in the Darkness because it's being rewritten now. Now we've got to shoot it all on a stage in France because we needed the French lions. So as Alex would send me places, and again, I think he goes by A. Kitman Ho, but uh, as Alex would send me places to do things and basically say, call me when it's ready, I just, that's how I was wired, which is like, I'm going to go there. I'm going to do it. And there's only one answer, which is to achieve. I love that to achieve. Okay. I have to just say, Thomas, I just feel like this was all destiny for you though. It's like just the way, I mean, I, you worked obviously very, very hard, but I feel like this was meant for you because of the, the door that was open and then how things were paved and how you just continued and just kept working your way. That's, that's pretty incredible. That is pretty incredible. How do you, how do you choose the film projects that you decide to pursue and produce? I mean, cause I mean, I, I, I named some of the titles that we had talked about earlier when we started, but how do you choose what you want to do? 
It's 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 funny when when you talk about destiny. I'm I'm a big fan uh, and a big believer of making your destiny. I'm a big believer of manifesting. I'm a big believer of seeing where you are and understanding where the end is and then figuring out how to get there. That goes back to, you know, uh, again, my formative years of go out and tell us when to come sort of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So for me, I I don't want to say projects choose me, but uh, early in my career, I worked with uh, A. Kim and Ho, Alex for uh, the earlier part. And then I started branching out and, and doing projects with other producers just because I didn't want to be pigeonholed as Alex's guy. And it was, it would be the only way I could actually move out. And because I had been Alex's guy and I would had, you know, I had been sent to, you know, South Africa post-apartheid and lived down in this place near, um, near, uh, Swaziland, uh, for a year. And if I was in the, um, uh, governmental service, it would be called hardship post, right? It's like, oh, he's a ambassador. We're going to send him to Timbuktu and we'll right. just let him work out there. So I think earlier in my career, I was known as the guy that you send into places to figure things out that nobody really understands or knows how to actually deal with. So I spent a lot of my life uh, on the road, mainly because they needed a guy that had a skill set that I had, which was the ability to sit with uh, uh, South African uh, tribal leaders and know enough South African so that when they spoke in front of me in Afrikaans or their dialect, I would know the key words, let them speak, and then I would be able to say, hold on, why are you saying that? And then they'd freak out. I'd be able to close a deal and move on. It became a, a thing where it's like, oh, if there's this difficult project, we'll send Tom in there. He'll figure it out. He'll let us know when to come. And so as I moved through my career and realized that, I didn't necessarily want to spend, you know, a year in Ghana or three to four years in the Caribbean on the Pirates movies um, over, you know, very small islands and all of that stuff. Um, I started just moving up into working with great filmmakers. And again, with, uh, you know, one of uh, my first projects without Alex, that was uh, a big challenge were, you know, the Pirates movies. You know, I was basically tasked with going down to the Caribbean and finding Port Royal. And the requirements for that were basically, you know, a deep water port, two big headlands on the side, the boat could come across and, you know, the ability for our our boats to get in there. We need to build docks and no one likes anyone to build in, you know, marine environments and all of that stuff. So, So they're really tall requirements. But again, Disney sent me down there and um, that's where I went and spent 60 days working from Florida all the way down the Caribbean line to Venezuela, up the coast uh, through the Yucatan, and then back around the Gulf Coast to find it. And, um, and we found, finally found it. And then I spent the rest uh, the next uh, year and a half of my life down there. Oh, incredible. So you definitely have a lot of travel. By the way, one of my favorite franchises. I absolutely love that franchise. Oh, thanks. Um, and Johnny Depp's work in it is just absolutely incredible. So with all your work and all these different films that you've worked on, what, from your perspective, would you say makes a successful film? Um, You know, it's funny, you know, again, when you choose a project or the project chooses you, you think of it, all right, it's a job, it's this, it's that, whatever it is, right? A successful film for me is working with filmmakers who enjoy working together. There's nothing worse than working on a difficult film with people you don't like, okay? 
Um, to make a successful film, if I knew that, I wouldn't be doing this. Uh, <laughs> so, for example, when we were making uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 1, you know, I'd have conversations with Gore Verbinski, the director, and say, hey, Howard Daly's looking to you. Is everything going all right? And, you know, his response is, hey, we're making a popcorn movie. It's going to be great. And, you know, Gore, you know, he, he's, he, he's done, you know, The Ring, he's done some other things. And so for him, this was kind of like, we don't know what it is, right. but it should be fun. <laughs> and it wasn't until it became a huge popcorn movie that we're all like, hmm, I think we made a good movie, you know. It worked. <laughs> it worked. It worked. But, you know, uh, when you work with filmmakers like Christopher Nolan, you have to be assured that whatever you're making on is going to be quality because he is a very uh, intelligent person, a very thoughtful filmmaker. For me, if a director knows what he wants and knows how to achieve it, I feel it's going to be a good movie. And Chris knows that to the T, has a courage of conviction. We know what we want to do. We know what we need to get. And the orders are usually really, really tall, which takes me all the way back to the beginning. I was like, hey, if he wants it, I guess I can give it to him. And so I think that's what makes a successful movie is, is having a director that really understands what he wants to deliver. Thomas, would you say that kind of excites you in a way too? making these tall orders happen? I mean, I'm sure there's challenges that come with it, but is that exciting as well to know that, yeah, you've been given this task to do and you are able to accomplish it? It's, it, it definitely is exciting, uh, sometimes uncomfortably exciting. But for example, on uh, Tenant, you know, I met with Chris, read the script. Uh, we sat down, we started talking about the content of the script. And one of the you know first things I asked him was, um, Hey, so uh, how big do you want this plane that, you know, drops all the gold bars and crashes into things and all of that stuff? And he just looked at me and kind of smiled and laughed. He said, listen, what do you mean? We're going to do all of that with miniatures like uh, like we did on, on Dunkirk. And I said, oh, OK, I just read it. And I know that you shoot everything practically uh, because you don't like visual effects. Therefore, I assumed that we need to get a plane. And he's like, no, no, we'll do it, you know. In miniature, and I said, "All right, well, just for your information, if you want a plane, I think I can get you a plane." And he said, "All right, let's see what you got." And at that point, I had no idea how to get him a plane, but because I read it, I knew that I had to give him a plane. Oh, cut wow. to cut to multiple calls and multiple uh, weeks later, we go on a scout, um, and on the way to uh, this place way down um, in uh, the desert in California, I said, why don't we make a detour and go to Victorville Airport? They've got old planes sitting there that are being salvaged. And I've got a, you know, I've got a contact there that can show us a plane. If you like it, we can talk about using that. So because we were scouting way out in the desert, we were using a helicopter. So we flew from L.A., detoured into Victorville, which is, again, in the California desert. Mm-hmm. And we flew over the airport, looked out the window, and Chris was like, I like that plane. I like that one. That's a great – and so we're, like, shopping for planes, you know, from the air sort of thing. We get the permission. We put the helicopter down. We walk over uh, to the aircraft that we like, and we chose the aircraft. And that's when I started making uh, a deal – to uh, have this aircraft that I could use for our film where we could, you know, physically crash it into a building, even though we didn't have a building. So then I had to figure out what building we're crashing into. But, you know, it's one of those things. So, yes, it is exciting. And a lot of times you're writing checks. You have no idea how you can cash, but you have no choice because that's what the director wants. That's what was written. 
and that's what uh, you know we need to shoot. And I think in coming up the way I came up uh, with the filmmakers I came up with, you know, with, uh, I come from the world of yes, it's a big visual effects movie, but it always has has to have a place in reality, so you know how the mechanics work. So if you read the page of like, oh, the big Kraken arm breaks the ship in half and people go sliding down, you know, as you'll see in Pirates 2 and 3, I think. Mm-hmm. That's like, all right, that's visual effects until it's not. And then it's like, oh, well, we got to build a tank and then we got to build a ship that breaks in half. And then we've got to actually build a Kraken arm, even though it's all going to be visual effects to understand how the Kraken arm comes down on the ship, how the water interacts. It's all of that stuff, right? So... It may seem easy um, when you read it on the page, but it, it, it generally is, uh, you know, the tip of the iceberg. And I, and I always bring up, you know, uh, in Pirates of the Caribbean, there was um, a line that we always joked about, which was, and then the most kick-ass three-way sword fight ensues. <laughs> like, all right, that's a line, which we liken to, and the Armada attacks. And so that three-way sword fight took place over five countries, over six months with stage wow. builds, visual effects. I mean, it was insane. It was crazy. That, so now, is that all part of your job? And I'm asking because there may be some people here that are not familiar with the responsibilities of an executive producer. So could you chime in a little bit on that? What does that title entail? Well, um, as with most producer titles in, in Hollywood, it's, it's a catch-all. So either you come in because you had a project or you come in because you were attached to a project, you developed a project. So there's the creative side of things um, where I found a book or I found a property and I'm bringing it to a studio and then we're going to attach cast and then we're going to, you know, and we're going to figure out what financing is or what it means and, and try to get that greenlit. I saw early in my career um, Alex spending a lot of time trying to package projects like that. And I worked with him on building budgets and, 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 and production plans and all of those things. And I realized that's not where the fun is. The fun isn't trying to get people to agree to make the movie. The fun is actually making the movie. So as my career progressed, it goes, it goes back to you know your question of how do I pick a project. They started calling me and saying, hey, I got this project. Are you interested in, in, in looking at it? Uh, to figure out how we make it. And so I shifted into more of a physical production guy, which is, all right, you want to do this. This is how we're going to do it. it. You know, this is my plan. We'll shoot it in this place. We'll shoot it in this state, in this country for these reasons. And that's uh, that's kind of more my forte is that a studio will come to me or a filmmaker or a director will come to me and say, Hey, I've got this project. It's set up at a studio. It's not greenlit. Don't know how to make it. Don't know how to make the money work, but they're willing to maybe give us this much money to make it. What do you think? So I'll read the thing and then try to figure out the production plan. And my gut really speaks to what I think it's going to cost just from experience. So I'm that type of executive producer, which is uh, basically, you know, like a line producer. I also deal with uh, cast and casting, not necessarily on the decision side, but on the deal side, but it's a very collaborative process. So if you have a film and you got money and you've got an idea of cast, I could probably get your movie made for you, physically okay. made. All right. That's good to know. Yes. No. 
And speaking of all the, you know, with the slate of films and series that you've done, what would you say has been your favorite till date? Like your most rewarding film? And then what has been perhaps the most challenging one for you? Hmm. Again, it's always one of those uh, questions, which is, you know, which is akin to what's your favorite food or what's your favorite song, right? It's like, <laughs> you know, given given the day, it could all be different. And uh, for me, always uh, in hindsight, every film was great because uh, you are detached from the pain of actually making the film. I would say, uh, as for, I guess, my favorite film, I think it would be the first parts of the Caribbean just because it's set, you know, a, a, an entire cultural norm for what a pirate was. And every uh, Halloween, you'd see the kids and then the teenagers and then the adults. And they all wanted to be Jack Sparrow and they all wanted to, you know, do that. And the film was a lot of fun. It was really challenging to make. I mean, I've got stories that would bore everyone to tears about how to get a crew of over 500 people onto an island where the biggest plane that could land could only seat 38 to 58 people, depending on luggage load. Oh my gosh. Did you have multiple trips then? No, because we needed to get everybody out at one time. So what we ended up doing was, um, you know, we shot the first parts of Caribbean in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And for those of you who don't know where it is, go on your map to South America, start in Venezuela, head east towards Africa, and when you hit the third island, you're there. Trinidad, Tobago, Grenada, St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Closest thing to St. Vincent and the Grenadines is St. Lucia. And again, you, everyone's got to get a map out for this. So what we had to do was we flew the entire crew in on a big charter into St. Lucia, rented uh, high-speed ferries from the neighboring islands, met everybody there, offloaded the plane, offloaded equipment, offloaded everything, got them through onto boats, and then went an hour down to St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And so for me, that was really important, was the impact we made to the small island nation. Um, you know, I had direct conversations with uh, Dr. Ralph Gonzalez, who is a prime minister, Peter Francis, uh, and, and uh, who is the uh, finance minister. And the way we made it work was full support of the government full support of the people and just adding a lot to their economy. Honestly, we, because they were not used to uh, anything of our size, the, the, the cruise ships would come in and leave. They would never stay. We had to go in and we had to upgrade and renovate almost every hotel. Uh, we had to upgrade and renovate houses, which included running internet to the houses, uh, shipping in containers and containers of ikea furniture to redecorate and renovate the houses so that we could put departments in the houses so it was and that's all on you right thomas to kind of help facilitate that this is my plan i because because i i didn't want to go to that island and the only reason we went there because there was nowhere else to go and originally i was trying to sell saint lucia and uh and Trinidad and Tobago. Those were two big islands that could support us that had government incentives to a certain you know, extent. Um, but when we were flying from St. Lucia to Trinidad and Tobago, uh, Gore looked out the window of the plane and said, hey, Tom, I'm not quite sure what that is down there, but go there. 
And it was basically a rock in the middle of the ocean. Oh, and I'm like, I have no idea where we are. And this is before smartphones and all that stuff. Right. I'm like, where are we? Where are we? And I finally figured out where we were. And so when he left, he said, go to that island, tell me what's there, and then we'll figure it out. And so I went there, and it was an island called uh, Alderond um, in waters called Kikam Jenny. And the reason the waters were called Kikam Jenny is because there was an underwater volcano that would eat boats if they were to go into that area, and it was erupting with methane. So, Oh, wow. That, so I went to that island, and it didn't work. But having to go that, to that island, I had to rent a rather large uh, motor yacht, for lack of a better word, and cruise down St. Vincent through Tobago Keys, past Mystique, you know, everybody's dream, right? Yeah. <laughs> I got to that island, and, on the, and it didn't work. And on the way back, I finally acquiesced and said, all right, let's go see this place called Wally Labu in St. Vincent. And I said, I've got to come back with something. I don't know how to deliver it. Went there, scouted it, took pictures, figured out where things are, sent it back to the studio. And they said, let's go there. And then my job began, which is, I don't know how to do any of this stuff, but we'll figure out how to do it because now we have a location. I love this lesson, this history lesson you've given to me, not just about that area, but even the behind the scenes making of this film, which to me, I believe is a huge global franchise too. I mean, I think it changed a lot for audiences across the world. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I love learning all these behind the scenes tidbits because I'm so fascinated personally by that. Like when I go to watch a film, I can't sit as a regular audience member because my brain is always working on how was this created? What did they have to do? How they make this happen? You mentioned the word impact and something I would love to talk to you more about is do you feel that your cultural identity as an Asian American has influenced your work in the industry and the stories that you choose to tell or as you're moving forward are there particular stories that you want to tell more now that are more cultural based? Um, I don't think I have stories that are more cultural based that I want to tell. I think what I'm recognizing right now is that when I started in this industry, there was an Asian man who was my boss and I looked at him and I'm like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. I mean, a New York Asian guy, you know, from Hong Kong. Sure, why not? And because I saw him doing it and achieving at a very high level, I thought, all right, then it's good enough for me. And, and again, I'm half, so everyone looked at me and kind of was like, where are you from? Who are you? You know, the, 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 the question I always get is, oh, where'd you grow up? You know, kind of the leading right. rather than what are you? It's like, where'd you grow up? Like I grew up in San Diego. They're like, oh, near Mexico. I said, yeah, <laughs> spend a lot of time. It's like the continual leading of questions, right? And so, what and so I finally, that's the thing. So I finally cut it off. I was like, listen, I was born in Vietnam. Blah, blah, give the whole story. And like, oh, you're Vietnamese. I'm like half Vietnamese, half Scottish because my father's mm. actual, my father's last name is Monroe. Therefore I'm. Vietnamese Scott. And so people were like, okay, now we know. And then we would just move on. But for me, I think my impact is hopefully letting people of, of, of different uh, cultures know that, yeah, there is a place for all of us here. And you look up and, and I'm 
you know, where I am, thank God, and, and doing what I do. And I tell everyone, you can do exactly what you want to do. You just have to believe in yourself. You have to will it. You have to understand. You have to have the courage of your conviction. And you got to put in the time. You, you, you can't wake up and get to where you want to go unless, of course, you start at the top and move sideways. Then you can. So, But that must be yeah. rare, Thomas. I'm sure that doesn't happen for everybody. I try to make it happen for as many people as I can. Oh, so, that's amazing. You know, so a kid you know, comes to me and says, Hey, uh, you know, can I work as a PA or whatever? My response is, well, what do you want to do? Their response is, I want to direct. My response is go direct something. I can't help you on a major studio film, become a director. Oh, well, can I be the director's assistant? My response usually is so you can get him coffee and make sure his storyboards in order and do that sort of stuff. I mean, I said, listen, you know, I say to these guys or I say to these people, you should do what you want to do and don't waste a lot of time getting there. If you want to direct something, I mean, now with TikTok and the way, you know, and I, and again, it makes me sound really old. The way these kids are making movies every day, it's like, it's just, it's like, just go do it because you can just, you can now. When I was growing up, it was kind of like the old, um, oh, should we all pitch in and buy a Super 8 camera and try to make our own movie? Or, you know, it's, it's, it was that sort of thing. It was, it was unattainable because you had to go through so many steps to actually get there, right? And I remember, you know, when I was 20, 21, 22 years old, getting together with friends and just making, you know, spec commercial projects because someone wanted to be a director. And the only way they could be a director is to go out and make a spec commercial project and maybe get a commercial somewhere or, you know, uh, make a featurette short or make a sizzle reel and people would say something. Now, you go out and make your own movie on your um, iPhone. Yeah. It's easy. It's I mean, it's easy much. if you have the, uh, you know, the, the creative impetus, but. Yeah. I think the tenacity and the dedication. Uh, what do you think your, what's your perspective of the current status of Asians and Asian Americans in the television and film industry, specifically in terms, I would say, of, of on-screen representation and involvement? Um, on-screen representation and involvement, I think, has grown over the years. But sometimes I see casting of Asians in films, and I, I guess I've been either too jaded, but sometimes I'll cringe. It's like, they chose that? They chose to go that way? But again, I'm an old guy, so it's it's hard for me to make a departure because when I talk to my kids about it who are in their teens, like, Dad, what are you talking about? That's a totally normal casting for that that, that role. I'm like, oh, well, you know, my perspective may not reflect what is actually, you know, fully going on out there with, with uh, you know, the new generation coming up. Um, right. I embrace diverse hiring. Uh, you know, I endeavor with my crew, with the studios, uh, with everybody to do that on every film. We always want to look everywhere we can look for new people. Because to be honest with you, all the people I came up with in terms of, you know, department heads, uh, for you know, in, everywhere from camera to uh, special effects to 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 every department, they're all older than me, which means they're probably all getting out of the business. Which means I've got a whole new group of filmmakers I need to either find, embrace, or trust. Right. So on Obi Wan Kenobi, you know, we were presented with the opportunity to work with uh, Chung Hoon Chung, who's you know a Korean uh, cinematographer. To people like uh, the costume designer I'm working with now, Eunice Jara Lee. She comes from low budget, independent, but you know what? 
the director was interested in her. Uh, she has great, uh, a great eye, a great vision. She comes recommended from filmmakers who've worked with her. And, you know, now she's doing a big, you know, summer tentpole movie. And so that's what I think is important is kind of looking away, getting out of your comfort level. And the way I look at it is, hey, if I'm able to make a movie in this country under these circumstances with people I've never known before, I should be able to make a movie anywhere in the world with anyone I feel is talented. And, you know, and again, I'm not, I'm an equal opportunity uh, employer. So I'd like to hire and put forward the best people possible. But if somebody is interesting there that hasn't had the chance, didn't have the door open where, you know, where my door was open, I, I, I kind of like to open that door and really um, give them the chance. I appreciate that about you. I mean, I really loved the story you told about the director's assistant as well, because I really think it's about having clarity of what you want to do and then the opportunity for someone to trust in your talent or to, to give you that chance. What would you um, say right now for, to young people or up and, just even up and coming Asian Pacific Islander filmmakers and producers who are looking to break into this industry? What, what piece of advice would you give to them? Uh, my advice to, you know, young uh, Asian Pacific um, uh, filmmakers is get your foot in the door. However you get your foot in the door and know once that door is open, what you want to do, because you don't want to waste any opportunity given to you. So have a very clear sense of what you want out of any opportunity and never let an opportunity pass you, no matter how fleeting it may seem. You know, it's, uh, I, I always liken it to if you're going to jump on a bull, you better ride that bull for that, you know, in, in, until you can't anymore. But, you know, I think it's really trying to understand what you want out of life, where you want to go, what you actually want to do. And again, without a lot of context, a lot of people don't understand what it means to be a prop master or a key grip or a writer or, you know, or being in a writer's room or whatever. And so I think the first bit of what I think could be helpful is just to educate the up and coming uh, people on, on, on what it actually means to, to, to work in the film industry. And again, again, aging myself, but back when I was growing up, you know, it first started off, uh, it's not all what they say, hookers and cocaine. And then when people started to get more PC, it's not all about champagne and caviar. And then as people really started to get more PC, they just said, yeah, it's a lot of hard work. It's not all about the glam. (laughs) Just, Just let me tell you, after being in this industry for over 30 years, I still have to make sure the toilets are parked in the right place and the caterers serving food on time. Right. That's part of the job, I bet. Part of the job, because if you miss that piece, the actors aren't going to be happy. The director's not going to get what he wants. You're not going to make your day and it goes sideways. So it's really just, you know, understanding it all. Well, and on that note, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up by asking you this after being in the business for more than 30 years, what keeps you excited about working in this industry? What keeps you going personally? (laughs) it's very funny it's uh every year i tell my wife 25 more years of this we should be okay and we should be able to retire but what keeps me excited about being in the industry is fulfilling dreams and fulfilling uh, taking what's in somebody's mind or on the page realizing it for them not only once twice three times but for eternity it's 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 there forever 
somebody writes on a page, we will uh, jump off the IFC buildings in Hong Kong and, well, and, and fly a C-130 down, you know, the middle of Victoria Harbor in Hong Kong after 9-11 at low levels. It's like, all right, not quite sure how to do that, but that's what you want to do. That's what we're going to do. And then you figure out how to do that. And that's what is really uh, great is just it's dream fulfillment, really, to be honest with you. And so if you wake up every morning and you're able to fulfill somebody's dream, not only the directors, the writers, the studios, but some kid in 40 years, it's dream fulfillment. And I think that's what kind of keeps me going is I'm not the, uh, the hub that keeps it all together, but I'm, you know, I'm a spoke in the wheel that uh, helps the wheel to roll. So uh, as long as I can do that and people can enjoy it, not only while I'm here, but later on, and my kids can say, oh, yeah, I think my dad worked on that. It's, you know, it's something. But I got to tell you, my kids don't care that I work in the film industry. No, <laughs> not phased by it at all. <laughs> they're, they're, I, I try to, like, get them to set to, like, see what's happening. And, uh, yeah, and they're just like, oh, dad, um, sure, we'll come. And they'll come and they'll look and they'll say, okay, can we go now? You know. Are they interested in working in the business at all or no? Uh, yeah, I think, I think they're interested in it, but again, whenever the funny saying in my house is when dad goes on location, the family goes on vacation. <laughs> yes. And I've spent, I mean, I honestly, out happens. of the 33 years or what, what, yeah, 33 years I've been in the industry, I've probably spent 12 to 14 years at home in LA and the rest of the time on the road. That's, you know. That's exciting when you're younger, when you get older, it's like, I kind of like to be at home, but right. you know, I'm very blessed to, I'm very blessed to have the opportunity to travel, work with the filmmakers I work with and, and help fulfill their dream and help fulfill the dreams of people who are looking forward to seeing, um, what, uh, these guys are making next. I think that's really, uh, really the good part of it. Well, I'm going to call you the magic man, Thomas, because I feel like you have such a huge part in making the magic happen both professionally and personally. So I want to thank you once again, because I know you have a very busy schedule. You're filming right now too. And um, it is such an honor and pleasure for us to have Thomas Hayslip on our show here at Asian Pacific Voices Radio. And we'd also love to hear from you, all of our valued listeners, about any suggestions that you may have on topics or future guests. And don't forget to subscribe to your favorite podcast platform, as well as follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And don't forget, Asian Pacific Voices Radio is produced by Asian Culture and Media Alliance, a nonprofit that empowers our Asian and Pacific Islands communities with a voice through media arts. Now, if you'd like to help support our program, please do visit AsianPacificVoicesRadio.com. Don't forget to join me next week for another exciting and thought-provoking Asian Pacific Voices radio show. Till then, take care. And if you want to work in this industry, like Thomas said, know what you want to do and work hard and don't waste time. See you next time.